And, uh, and so why don't we turn to Matthew chapter 5, a little detour there real quick, a little left-hand turn myself. Um, it says uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, all right, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And, uh, you know, isn't it interesting that Jesus, before he gave the most famous message, that he, he sat down and was motivated by seeing the people. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. How many know that he got into position because he saw the need? Can I get a big amen on that? Verse 2, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And... Um, I, I just think this is there's really, really beautiful, and this moment that Jesus is having, um, I, you know, I've, I've done a series before um, called, uh, uh, what, are, what do we call that series? The, uh, the Attitude of Being, I think we called it, and, or just we called it the B-Attitudes. I, I don't know, we did a play on words on it anyways. It's on the site, you could grab it, not on the podcast. But, um, and, and I spent a lot of time in that series um, breaking down this idea of how Matthew as the writer is setting up Jesus in a very um, mosaic type picture. And you see that Matthew lets us know in chapter 4 that Jesus had just spent time in the wilderness. All right, and so he had spent 40 days in the wilderness. We know the children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. And now all of a sudden Jesus is ascending to a mountain and there's a crowd at the base of the mountain. This is another symbolic picture of Moses as he went into Mount Sinai and he elevated into the presence of God and he began to receive the law. And so what Jesus begins to do as through the writer Matthew, it's communicated that essentially Jesus is giving the new covenant law. It's the law of love. And Jesus spends a lot of time in this whole chapter. If you read the whole thing, he would say, hey, you've heard it said like this, but I say it like this. And Jesus was going after um, narratives and perspectives on, on the law. And he was, uh, he was basically setting them up to have a, a, a broader new covenant or kingdom, if you will, understanding on these things. And so Matthew, as a writer, is trying to set Jesus up as, as the new Moses. How many know that if, if, if you only believe if you've only got one person who is the source of the law, and it's Moses in your culture, but you have the king of kings showing up, you might need a little bit of adjustment to be able to receive him, right? And so here's Matthew trying to really set up um, Jesus as the coming of the new covenant. He's the coming of the new law. And so we have all this type and picture. And so how many know that if Matthew's going to great lengths to set up the fact that Jesus is the new author of the law of love, that maybe the first thing he says might be kind of important? <laughs> you know, isn't it interesting that, you know, from what we know, this is Jesus' first public, you know, message. It's his first sermon. It's also very interesting, I spend a lot of time in, in the, the Attitude of Being um, series, you know, talking about how Jesus, how, asking the question, how did Jesus get all these people to show up? 
How did Jesus at his first sermon get thousands and thousands of people to show up to his first message? And, and so it's significant because here Jesus has done a lot of work to get the crowd there. And, and I, I begin to share with you how he kind of elevated and, and to leverage education and government to kind of get this crowd there and, and demand that people have to deal with him. You know, I was talking about that earlier. A lot of people think that Jesus kind of showed up and, hey, I'm the Savior, and people got excited. That's actually not true. He actually leveraged cultural tools of an education path with the judicial authority as a rabbi to demand that people would deal with him. How many you know judges make decisions on other people's behalves? But they make it at their discretion, don't they? And so here Jesus was leveraging cultural tools to get himself in position to be able to execute decisions on other people's behalves from a new covenant lens. And so how many of that everyone had to deal with Jesus? They had to deal with him. This was not an option. And so, uh, and he had a very strong authority and so, and a cultural authority. And so here he is and he's saying these things and um, if you break down the Beatitudes, when you look at um, the writers and, and the cadence of, of uh, writing in Aramaic, we know that this is in Greek, the New Testament's in Greek, but the order of how things have been translated into the Greek um, would have originally been written in Aramaic, and, and so their writing cadence is usually in threes, and so oftentimes you'll see they'll, they'll present one thing, and then a second thing, and then a third thing, and the idea is that whatever's in the middle is hyper-emphasized. And so it's almost like the conclusion or the point or the most important thing is always in the middle, all right? And so they, 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 they wrote in a different pattern, a different cadence than what we do. We like bullet points. We like to introduce our three points. Then we support our three points. And then we summarize our three points. And that's how we write as Western 21st century people, okay? Well, in first century, this is how Matthew would have wrote, is he would have wrote the most, uh, wrote something important, and then the most important thing, and then something to support that most important thing that makes the first thing make sense, all right? And so if you kind of break down that pattern, that cadence, it gets us down to very quickly into verse 6, 7, and 8, and, uh, and so Jesus is emphasizing this point, and he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And today I'm going to spend my time here um, as we go after this idea of raising the bar in our service. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, one of the assumptions we have about this passage of scripture is that we think that it kind of means you'll be blessed if you stay away from evil. Hunger and thirst for right. You'll be blessed if you desire to do good things. And, and so we think about this idea of, you know, of righteousness. And, and oftentimes we think it's about what I do. We think it's about this thing that I do, my performance, and how I maintain my right standing with the Lord. Everyone say, that's a lie. Well, that's a lie right there. And so, you know, I, I, I was raised, I was actually born into a Pentecostal movement called the UPC, United Pentecostal Church. And, uh, and so a part of the UPC was that, you know, you had to, you know, women couldn't wear makeup, uh, women couldn't cut their hair, and then the rules were, um, were opposite on hair for men. Men had to cut their hair, you know. So the women, you know, had to have hair down here, and the men couldn't have hair that touched their collars, okay. Uh, men couldn't have facial hair. Uh, nobody could wear shorts because, I mean, you see some ankles and you might sin, you know. Um, anyways, uh, you know, you weren't allowed to go to the movies. You weren't, you weren't allowed, you weren't allowed, you weren't allowed. And these were called holiness standards. 
Anyone ever, anyone familiar with this? Holiness standards, kind of the holiness movement. And so um, we, I, we, I was born into that. And there was actually a church here in Michigan. was a vibrant part of that movement. And, and so a lot of good things that they've done. They had, a, they had a passion for revival. I mean, I was born in revival. I mean, hunger, Holy Ghost, you know, tongue-talking, Holy Rollers, born again in spirit. I mean, they had all these funny songs, you know. And, uh, and, and so they would sing about it. You know, I'm a tongue-talking, Holy Rolling, born again believer. So I'm a something in the power of Jesus' name. I mean, they just go for it, you know, and they'd, they'd go on. Anyways, and so, I mean, my parents got filled with the Holy Spirit there, and my parents were good Baptist people. My dad got stuck in a spray booth with this Spirit-filled UPC Holy Spirit guy. And on breaks, this guy would just talk about the Holy Spirit and the power of God. And my dad's like, you're going to hell. My dad was being a good Baptist. <laughs> I love the Baptist brothers and sisters. You want them on your Bible trivia team. <clears throat> Praise God. Never ask a charismatic to play Bible baseball with you. You'll lose. <laughs> they know the worship songs. They don't always know the scripture. Anyways, um, so, so he's in this spray booth, and, and, you know, on the, on the, on the line in the, the car shop. And so, anyways, they're having these Bible studies, and my dad goes back to his uh, Baptist uh, seminary uh, principal, essentially, the dean of the school. He was in the ministry school. And he said, hey, this guy at work is telling me about the Holy Spirit. And, you know, what's this book of Acts? Why don't we ever teach the book of Acts here in seminary? And uh, the guy's like, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of false prophets out there. And uh, you got you to be careful about that stuff. You know, those things were, were just, for the, just for the apostles. And you're not an apostle, so those, those are dead with the apostles. And uh, so just leave that stuff alone. Well, my dad, being a, you know, a rebellious Christian, went to a Holy Ghost service, drugged my mom there to this Holy Ghost service. She was kicking and screaming, being a good Baptist. And they got up there, and, and my dad was like, hey, Terry, just have an open mind. Come on, just, just go with an open mind, you know. I think there might be something here. My mom was angry. She wasn't receiving. My dad's trying to be open. And before you know it, my mom's like laid out in the altar. My dad's like, I want what she has. All of a sudden, a few minutes later, he's up there. <laughs> hey, I got, I got a Holy Spirit heritage out of these holiness standards. But how know sometimes you got to keep the baby but throw out that bathwater, amen? So I was raised, raised in, a, in a performance movement alongside the power of God. And so, you know, I was raised to believe that, you know, righteousness was about how good I was at not doing bad things. And so that was kind of ingrained in me, and, and so I got pretty good at that stuff. And so my interpretation of the scripture would have been that. You'll be blessed if you stay away from evil. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, and then the other I idea, once you kind of take the next step in, that's often, you know, uh, a traditional interpretation, is that righteous people are those who don't do evil. Okay, and so once again, it's still a limited observation connected to the idea of evil rather than the concepts of what righteousness really is. And so how many, knows that, how many know that righteousness has nothing to do with evil? When we're talking about God's righteousness, when we're talking about his ability to declare us righteous, it's his ability to be good on our behalf. Can I get a big amen? And so, you know, um, you know, so these holiness movements and religious movements and different things can oftentimes really categorize, you know, our right standing with God according to what we didn't do. I didn't cuss this week. I didn't smoke a whole pack of cigarettes yesterday. 
I didn't go to this place. I didn't talk this way to my, my husband. I didn't talk that way to my wife. I didn't laugh at that joke. And, and we, like, we have all these really dumb metrics of ticky-tack behavior things that we think are important to the Lord. And, and, and so what we realize is in the midst of that, and those things are important to the Lord, but how many know what's most important to him is connection? And that if there's connection, he can deal with all the rest of the stuff. And love you into a place that you'd become more like him. Can I get a big amen on that? How many know that when the revelation of grace comes to you, it changes the way that you behave? Come on, you can't help but want to long to be like Jesus. You can't help but just want to look like your father. Come on, somebody. When you encounter grace, it compels you to want to come and encounter his righteousness. Can I get a big amen? And so that is not what Jesus was talking about. And I'd like to propose to you, um, you know, and I've spent some time on this before, and so, um, but I think this is a foundation that we need to have in, 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 our, in our, our understanding of God, is that righteousness was not about what you didn't do uh, against yourself, but it was all about what you did do for others, particularly those who couldn't do something in return. There's this invitation in the idea of righteousness when you begin to look at the etymology of the word and, and how it would have been used in Aramaic would have been this invitation for you to go do something for the least of these. This, the root word for righteousness is actually the core root of charity or generosity. Love and action. And so when we encounter righteousness, God's righteousness, it's his love and inaction to do something for us that we can never do in return for him. But how many are excited that we are not, the encounters we have are not a means unto an end, but we are have an encounter so that we can become an encounter? Come on. Look at your neighbor and say, you're not a problem. You're a solution. You're not in the way of the plan of God. You are the plan of God. God doesn't want to work despite you. God wants to work through you. You know, a lot of people have this Gnostic idea that God is working all around me, but not working through me. And, uh, and so we have a new heart, a new mind, and a new spirit. And so we stand on this idea that I'm to have an encounter, but sometimes we have a hard time, uh, you know, kind of moving to the point to believe that what I've received, now I'm able to freely give away. We see Jesus pull a radical stunt in John chapter 21, and he says, hey, those that you forgive, I'll forgive. And those that you reject, I'll reject. How many know that there's a little bit of responsibility on the encounter that we receive from the Lord, isn't there? How many know that there's a favor on our life to begin to represent Jesus, come on somebody, and to bring that experience that we've received and to represent that to those that are around in the world. This is, this is very biblical in 2 Corinthians 5. It's called being an ambassador of reconciliation. Not in part imputing their trespasses against them, that you would reconcile people back to the Father. You see, our job in, in, in all of life, as we bring heaven to earth, is to bring people back to the Father. And so there's this opportunity that we have, as Jesus was inviting to, you know, us in, he was saying, hey, you know, if you hunger and thirst to give to those who hunger and thirst, you'll never hunger and thirst. If you... Hunger and thirst to give to those who hunger and thirst, you'll never hunger and thirst. There's something beautiful about becoming what those around us need. 
There's something beautiful about laying our lives down and saying, hey, I want to do something for you that you could never repay me back for. There's something beautiful about going and giving your, your second cloak to someone who doesn't have one. There's something beautiful about giving food. There's something beautiful about giving a ride. There's something beautiful about this idea that when you do things to the least of these, you've done it unto me. This is a core tenet of the gospel. You can't look like Jesus without serving people who can't do something in return. It's impossible. And, and there are other things you can do that look like Jesus, but I'm telling you there's something available in this experience that is unique to the gospel that you can't duplicate in any other way. There's something amazing that comes out of us when we begin to open our hearts and our minds to give to those who can never give something back in return. And so one of the things that um, we struggle with in the charismatic movement is serving. We struggle with it. Um, we struggle with it because we really love the power of God. We love the demonstration of God. We're filled with his wonder. And we have a really bad, um, incomplete understanding that that only happens in the church service. And so because of that, we, we become people who really want to be in the church service, but would never want to serve at the church service. Because we want to receive. And so I love the hunger that's behind that. I love the desire that's behind that. But how many know that the greatest reward we can do, um, or the greatest reward we can receive, is when Christ moves through me, not when Christ gives something to me? Come on. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Come on. That's why we're so high on equipping people. That's why we're bringing people in like Dano and Sean Bowles, because they're teaching us how to give prophetic words, not just receive prophetic words. I, I can't tell you guys how many church services I was in growing up where there was a prophet in the room, and I was like, pick me, pick me, pick me. I mean, we've all been there, right? I mean, let's just be honest, right? I mean, a little show of hands, come on, right? I'm like, I want the word. I mean, I mean I, I'm picking up Sean Bowles from the airport, and I will have... A hard time keeping my thoughts pure and my desire of his abilities to hear God's voice on my behalf. <clears throat> so, Sean. Sup, man. Prophesying a lot lately, I see. Yep. <laughs> Come on. Man, it was, it was I mean, uh, like... You know, back in the day, there weren't a lot of prophets, and so if a prophet came, I mean, you were just starving for encouragement. You know, and you didn't even, you didn't even care if it was a bad prophetic word. You just wanted to be picked out of the crowd. You know, and back in the day, it was like you'd have a prophet on stage and be like, you back there, come up here. You know, and you'd be like, yeah, come on down. Dun, 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 dun. You know, I mean, and, 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 and gosh, I mean, anyways, that's a rabbit trail. But so there's, we, we've been so focused. We were starving out of, out of an unhealthy culture of, that lacked empowerment. We've been starving for so long for us just to receive. But I tell you what, church, we have a revelation in this house that we've received it all. And you have complete access to the Father. I am not your mediator. Someone say Amen. Drew Neal's not your mediator. Papa T's not your mediator. Mama C's not your mediator. 
Married man is not your mediator. Your husband is not your mediator. Come on, somebody. I said, ladies, you are powerful and free. Come on, we all have direct access to the Father. I'm first in line, and so are you. That's the beauty of the kingdom of God, which means we don't have to strive into receiving from him. We don't have to protect with the idea of preserving what we've been given and be stingy. People preserve and protect when they believe that what they give away, they could never get back. But how many know that when you've been given everything, you can freely give away and know that you'll never run dry? Come on, somebody. And it's interesting because we're not called to be a lake. We're called to be a river. You're not called to collect things. You're called to be a source of something moving through you. I got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Come on, somebody. And so there, there, there's... So, we are shifting our mentalities right now, especially in the charismatic movement, because we kind of elevated people in a weird way, and then we waited for the man of God, mostly sometimes the woman of God, to affirm us in a public place, and then finally we'd feel like we got a little bit of something, um, but there just wasn't much distribution of affirmation or encouragement. And so we, in, in the charismatic movement, we only thought there were a few sources um, that we could even get it from. And so we were starving, and, and, so, uh, and so God's shifting that, though, and we're realizing that as charismatics, good charis- we're a good charismatic church here, um, that we have all access, and that we can begin to turn our affection and our heart towards the people that are going to come through this door and get that first big drink of Holy Spirit goodness. And that's what's shifting. We're, we're, as our maturity increases, we're realizing there's an opportunity to do things for the least of these, if you will. And, and we're not saying that every visitor is the least of these, but what's for sure, if you're at Gen 1, you're feasting. This is a good church. Man, we, we got great worship. Come on, we got the power of God. You can walk up to anybody and get a good word. I mean, it's like you just, I mean, you, you need a word, just raise your hand. We will surround you, maybe kind of scarily. Like, we really love to prophesy, you know. I mean, it's like, but it's like, it's amazing. I mean, like, man, you're so anointed. Like, you have so much authority in the spirit of God to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. Come on. I mean, you got, you're full of the Holy Ghost. I mean, you can lay hands on me anytime. I say that to any of you in the room, unless you're crazy. But how many know that we don't lack any good thing? And so when we begin to kind of burst out of some of these old experiences, some of these old mentalities, we realize there's a freedom for us to be fully ourselves and to get to stay in the flow of the overflow no matter what we're doing. And I tell you what, what's about to happen in, in this next season of Gen 1 is that I believe we're about to blow the roof off this building. And when I say that, I don't mean like in attendance, although that will probably happen. But what I'm telling you is that there's going to be so much power in every corridor, in every parking lot space, in every restroom stall, in every seat. Come on, somebody. And every little nook. and I mean, the power of God is going to just begin to demonstrate and explode because everyone who's here believing that the overflow is moving through their lives, which means God wants to do something good right there and then. It's a shift in mentality. What's true is that you won't grow in your capacity to receive unless you're willing to first give. Yeah. 
Come on, somebody. So blessed are those. If you hunger and thirst, to give to those who hunger and thirst, you'll never hunger and thirst. Another verse retake could be on this, would be happy with their decision as someone who helps other people. If you look at the Aramaic, that would be a very easy, legitimate translation. Happy with their decision is someone who helps other people. There's this idea, once again, of zidak and zidakah, and this idea of, of righteousness and generosity be coming together. And, uh, you know, if you go into a Jewish synagogue, you're going to find that there's a righteousness box, and it's the box where they, they give alms for the poor. And, uh, and, and this idea that's behind it is, is just this, this expression that says, hey, when I'm giving to the least of these, when I'm giving to those who can never do something back for me, I am not becoming righteous, I am expressing the righteousness of God in Christ. And so I, I love it that Jesus has become righteousness, and he did it in exchange for my sin, that he took my sin gave me his righteousness. But how many know that's only the first step? The next step is to become that righteousness and express it into the earth. You know, another great idea of righteousness is making wrong things right. There's a lot of hell on the earth that needs heaven to show itself. And so, you know, how many know that we talked last week about how our words are inhabitable? Which means they're always inhabitable because God's order of creation says that this is always possible. And the enemy comes to pervert that. And so he brings in, you know, if, if we bring praise and God inhabits praise, you know, we know that the enemy inhabits worry and anxiety. He inhabits fear. He inhabits negativity and pessimism. And, and, uh, pessimism. And, and so he inhabits those things. And so it's also true that the earth is able to become a habitation for kingdoms. So there's only two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And so if we can bring heaven to earth, that must mean that someone's trying to bring hell to earth. This isn't just about, oh, let's just get a nice little upgrade. No, there is a confrontation that, is, that, is, that has been, you know, um, in, in process. Now we know who the victor is, but we got to walk this thing out and exercise our dominion. And so we're not just bringing hell so we can have more miracles. We're bringing hell to make wrong things right. Or we're bringing heaven to make wrong things right. Amen. Hey, get this microphone out of this guy's hand. He's scary. Righteousness to make wrong things right. We've been talking about this concept of accepting responsibility in our ministry school. And the concept is this, is that, you know, you only gain the anointing for things you're willing to accept responsibility for. A lot of people want anointing to see people fall on the ground. And if I could just pray for this person and they get slain in the spirit, everyone will think I'm sweet. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I remember early on I started doing itinerant stuff and you show up and you do a conference with another itinerant and they're like Mr. Impartation person. You know, and then like you're doing the whole thing, like people kind of divide out and they ask the two guest ministers to go do impartation. And you see more people falling down with the other minister than yourself. You got to kind of know who you are in those moments. You know what I mean? It's easy for our flesh to take over in those moments, you know? And you try just kind of doing that little Holy Spirit nudge. Like, I think you want to fall. Are you sure? Like, let's just go down. I'm going to baptize you with fire. I'm going to shabba that forehead. <laughs> Come on. 
Somebody gets up and tells a big testimony, and your testimony is next, and all of a sudden, that healing came a little faster. That diagnosis was a little heavier. Come on. There's an invitation there for us to get out of our identity, isn't there? Performance-based things. We think it's going to qualify us. But how many know that when God executes something, that there's power in the word of what he's done to destroy all the works of the devil? And that it's rooted not in the action, it's rooted in who we are and who we're, who we're abiding in. Can I get a big amen? You know, I've, I've seen just meetings break wide open from the most simple testimonies, but there was just someone who had so much faith behind that little testimony. Come on, it wasn't the coolest story I'd ever heard. It wasn't the most, you know, the, the testimony everyone wants to brag about, but that person got up there and knew who they were, and all of a sudden the Holy Ghost fell, and I tell you what, it was the greatest testimony ever. Come on, how many of you were called to make wrong things right? Come on, we're not here to compare. We're not here to do our own thing. We're not here. We're here to bring heaven everywhere that we see hell. And so we have a job to do, and that job is to become the righteousness of God in the earth. And so, you know, what's exciting is that you don't, you don't just get to do this at church. That's not what this message is about. This is, you know, you get to be the righteousness of God in Christ everywhere that you go. Um, but when we get together, we get to do it here too. And we need you to do it. We need you to jump in and be a part of this, this next season. I tell you what, because we're about to grow in a way that's kind of fun. There, there's, there's something been stirring in the spirit realm. Hearts are getting knit together in a special way. Things are opening up. Favor is here. Some forces here some ways too. There's some things coming together that we need to realize, hey, we need to get the nursery ready. There's a baby about to be delivered. And we need you on the team. And we don't just need you. We, we, we believe that this is just who we are, that when we get together as a family, that we can't help but want to express this level of righteousness of making wrong things right, destroying the works of the devil, giving to those, excuse me, who can never give something back to us in return. You know, it's interesting in the book of Romans, you know, Paul begins to talk about the fact that faith is proven by our love, not our belief system. Faith is proven by our love, not our belief system. You know, what, what does love demand? Love demands that you lay it all down. Give your life for your spouse, just as Christ gave his life for the church. That's a sacrificial love. How many know that you believe something to be true, and it's proven in the level that you're willing to lay your life down? And I tell you what, there is something beautiful about being willing to lay our lives down for those who can never give something back in return. Can I get a big Amen. You know, there's only one scripture that says that you know the Lord for sure. There's only one scripture that clarifies the fact that you for surely have known God. It's the only one that clarifies it, that says that this is what is connected to knowing God. And it's in Jeremiah 22. 
And it says, he defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? Twenty-two sixteen. Isn't it interesting how Cornelius, the centurion, we know that he was a, a Roman centurion, which means he would have had to profess that Caesar was Lord, which means he's a pagan, right? Caesar is Lord. We know this is why Paul, in the book of Romans, 10, 9 and 10, he tells the Romans to profess that Jesus is Lord. This is not the magic ceremony. This is Paul talking to people who worshiped a pagan god through a ritual that demanded them say, Caesar is Lord. So Paul's saying, hey, well, you're Romans and you have this ritual, so you'll understand this ritual. So let's, let's, you know this thing that you understand about Caesar? You need to do that for God. Jesus is Lord, if you profess with your mouth, right? And so he's, he's meeting a cultural need in this moment. And, and, uh, and so here we have a man who's done this. He said that Caesar was Lord. And so... He believed that Caesar was God. I mean, he's a good pagan person. And, uh, but yet, all of a sudden, you see this man is, is said to have had God with him. And if you go into the book of Acts, you begin to see that the story is connected to the fact that this man was meeting the needs of the widow and the orphan. He was meeting the needs of the least of these and, and those that were around him. He was, he, was, he was communicating the righteousness of God, and he was included a good pagan man, and messes with our theology, but what's true is that when you begin to demonstrate righteousness, it gets God pretty excited. It doesn't mean that God's just saying anyone can do anything, but here's a pagan man who probably didn't know God very well, but had begun his pursuit, and in his pursuit, all of a sudden, he's leading a movement of people coming to the Lord. Come on, somebody. Once again, it's not about your behavior that qualifies you. It's about your willingness to let God move through you that becomes a blessing unto you that sets you up to begin to represent who Jesus is. And I tell you what, God can work with a person who's barely begun to know him. He can work with the child. He can work with the widow and the orphan. Come on, somebody. He can work with the professional Christian and the Pharisee. He just needs people who are willing to make some wrong things right, to give to those that can never give something back in return, to say, hey, I want to bless you, and you're not able to give something back to me blessed are those who hunger and thirst there's something beautiful in this exchange that's not about our performance it's about our intention to demonstrate God's goodness and the act of giving to those that can never give something back in return And so we just have this invitation in this season, you guys, just to jump in and like go on a wild journey together. We want to raise the bar. When we say raise the bar, we're wanting just a, it's just idea of, you know, if you've ever tried to exercise and you used a bar, you probably put weights on the end of it, you know, and you don't grow new muscle unless you put a few new weights on the end. And so what we're doing is we're putting a few new weights on the end, and that weight is faith. It's expectation. It's excellence. It's service. And we're starting to push that bar up, and we're going to get some new reps in, and it's going to be really, really exciting, and we're going to build some muscle that helps us overcome the wicked one a little more than what we have today. And so a powerful question for us, though, in this, so this is that corporate understanding. We're inviting you. We can talk about team one. Come here next week. Be part of the teams. One o'clock, 405. Great. Let's talk about your life. What's the place in your life where you need to put a little bit of weight on the bar? 
and give to those who could never give something back in return. You know, some of you have that, you know, in your marriage. Some of you have that in a relationship. I see two brothers right now. There's a relationship in the room between brothers, and, and one is in a position where they can't give back. And they've needed, and they've needed, and they've needed, and they've needed, and they're a victim, and they've needed, and they've needed. And I just hear the Lord saying, don't, don't grow weary, but continue to give to those who can never give back to yourself. And I just see God's want to do something beautiful in that relationship. Who's that person in your life? Who's that person at work that you had to train and you're still training two years later that frustrates the living daylights out of you? Come on. Who's that child who just breaks all their boundaries with you? Can't seem to get it right. Can't communicate. Can't honor the house. Who's that person in your life that God is just longing to move through you to give to the least of these. Father, we thank you right now for the opportunity, Lord, to demonstrate your righteousness, to, gener to demonstrate your generosity. Father, and we accept this opportunity, Lord, for us to be a habitation, and Lord, and to begin to give this away. That, Lord, we would begin to host the presence, and that as we do that, that we would begin to, to generously Give this to those who can never give something back in return. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the free gift you've given us that we could never give back in return. And so, Lord, just as we've received your free gift of love, your mercy, your grace, God, we've freely we've received, now freely we will give. And so, Father, Lord, we just say yes. Lord, as a house, we say yes to these services. Lord, we say yes to serving. Lord, we say yes to what we do when we gather, our trainings, our, our, you know, our times of breakthrough and, and outreach. Lord, everything we do corporately, Lord, we just say yes to that. And Lord, we say yes to Detroit and, and Lord, making wrong things right, Lord, and, um, and, and minorities and in education and, um, Lord, in our judicial system. And, Lord, all the places where there is opportunity for upgrade, um, Lord, for the voiceless and those who are oppressed and those who are mishandled. Father, Lord, I just ask you to continue to open our eyes and show us those that we could love and we could go after. And Lord, in our individual lives, Lord, help us to see the least of these, that we would stop, that Lord, we would not step over, that we would not walk around, but that Lord, we would bend our knee and reach our hand. Lord, knowing that when we've done it under the least of these, we've done it under you. This is the gospel. God, let us burn. Let us burn for the reality of the gospel. God, let us be filled with your compassion. Let us be overwhelmed with your generosity. God, let us be motivated out of mercy. God, let kindness, kindness renew our mind. Let joy be on our grip. Let love be in our grasp. And let peace be in our words. God, that we would become an encounter everywhere that we go. Oh. Let the gospel come alive in us. We just thank you for Jesus and the free gift. We accept it right now in Jesus' mighty name. And Lord, we declare...
that just as we've re received freely, that we will now freely give. <laughs> we will freely give and we just say yes, we say yes, we say yes. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' mighty name.